During the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union competed in almost every arena. Space, sports, and of course the military. Everything they competed in was designed to show the superiority of their respective systems. In 1972, one of the greatest Cold War rivalries came to a head in Reykjavik, Iceland. It didn't take place at a sporting event or on a battlefield. Rather, it took place over a period of two months on a chessboard. Learn more about the 1972 World Chess Championship, a.k.a. the Match of the Century, on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. Summer is right around the corner, and that means cookouts. No matter what your preferred food is for a cookout or a barbecue, ButcherBox can help you make it the best. If you want to serve up some hamburgers, ButcherBox has grass-fed ground beef to make the perfect smash burger. Want to cook up some steaks? Well, ButcherBox has that too, with some of the best cuts of steak, such as New York Strip, ribeye, and filet mignon. Do you like grilled chicken? Well, ButcherBox has some of the best pasture-raised chicken that you will find anywhere. And if you really want to wow people at your next cookout, you can try grilling some of their wild-caught salmon on a cedar plank. Sign up at ButcherBox.com daily and get a special deal. ButcherBox is offering my listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com daily and use code daily to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935 after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. To paraphrase the great Napoleon Dynamite, you have to have skills. There's a whole universe of things you can learn to better yourself, and Skillshare can help you do it. Some of the most popular classes on Skillshare include iPhone photography, Adobe Illustrator, watercolor painting, interior design, and creating videos for YouTube. With Skillshare Premium, you can have unlimited access to everything for as low as $8.25 per month. Go to everything-everywhere.com slash Skillshare to get a free two-week trial of Skillshare Premium membership, or just click on the link in the show notes. To be completely honest, the Cold War rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union in chess really wasn't much of a rivalry. The Soviet Union completely dominated the upper ranks of chess for decades. From 1948 to 2007, every world chess champion, save for one, all came from the Soviet Union or Russia. In fact, you can take it back as far as 1927, where the champion was a Russian who fled to France because of the Communist Revolution. 
Soviet chess was a machine. They recruited bright players with talent at a very young age. The Soviets took chess seriously and treated it as a sport, not a game. Soviet chess players would be rigorously trained and studied games of past grandmasters. They would also analyze and drill on opening moves, and they would be able to constantly practice against some of the best players in the world. Coming into 1972, the reigning world champion was Boris Spassky. Spassky was a product of the Soviet chess system. He was a world junior champion and a two-time Soviet champion. He played for the world championship and lost to fellow Soviet Tigran Petrosian in 1966, and then beat him for the world championship in 1969. Not only was Spassky good, but he had the entire Soviet chess system behind him. Spassky's challenger in 1972 was American Bobby Fischer. Fischer couldn't have been more different than Spassky. Bobby was born in Chicago and raised in Brooklyn by a single mother. He never knew his father, but later investigations showed that it was probably Hungarian mathematician and physicist Paul Nemeny. Fischer was a chess prodigy. He learned the game at the age of six from a chess set purchased at a local candy shop. His sister quickly lost interest in the game, and his mother didn't have time to play. So, he would play most of his early games against himself. That year, he found a book on chess when his family went on vacation, and he studied it religiously. Fisher became consumed with chess, so much so that it worried his mother. Eventually, she tried to put a classified ad in a local newspaper to look for other children to play chess with Bobby, but the paper didn't know how to classify it and rejected it. Fisher eventually found his way to chess clubs in New York and began to quickly excel. In 1956, he became the youngest U.S. chess champion at the age of 13. The next year, at the age of 14, he became the youngest United States champion, a record he still holds. At the age of 15, he became the youngest grandmaster in history. At the age of 16, he became the youngest person to qualify for the World Championship Candidates Tournament. Fisher ended up winning eight U.S. championships out of eight attempts, a record that still stands. In 1964, he won the U.S. championship with an 11-0 record, the best record ever in the history of the tournament. He began competing internationally and found a great deal of success. At the 1962 Candidates Tournament, he accused the Soviets of collusion, saying that they would quickly draw matches against each other to save their energy and time for their matches against Fischer. By and large, the accusations were believed to be true. Fischer had a very abrasive personality. He was extremely arrogant and very demanding. Throughout the 1960s, he was extremely flaky. He went into semi-retirement twice, constantly objecting to tournament conditions, formats, and prize money. However, in 1970, he finally made a serious run at the World Championship. Over 1970 and 1971, he crushed his competitors in a way that no one else has before or since. In a lead-up to the World Championship, he defeated Soviet Grandmaster Mark Tomanov 6 to nothing, a lopsided score that is almost unheard of in international competitions. He then did it again, beating Danish Grandmaster Brent Larsen 6 to nothing. By the time he became the official challenger for the World Championship, he had set a record-high ELO score of 2,785, 125 points higher than the next highest person, which is still a record that stands today. However, despite all of his success, there was one person he had never beaten, Boris Spassky. He had lost to him three times and tied twice. Fischer began being stubborn again about match conditions. Fischer wanted the match to take place in Yugoslavia, and Spassky wanted to take place in Reykjavik, Iceland. Fischer eventually agreed to Reykjavik, but only if the prize money would increase. 
Eventually, a British businessman donated $125,000, doubling the prize money, making it the largest purse for a chess match ever. Eventually, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger called Fisher to conjole him to go to Iceland. The match format was the best of 24 games, a win being one point and a draw being a half point. Fisher needed 12.5 points to become the world champion. If the match was a draw at 12 points, Spassky would retain the title. Fisher didn't show up for the opening ceremony on July 1st. When the first game started on July 11th, Fisher didn't show up. Spassky moved his piece, hit the clock, and waited nine minutes. Fisher finally entered the room and proceeded to lose his match. After his loss, Fisher began making more demands of the tournament officials, including the removal of all the cameras, which he said were making too much noise. The officials refused to move the cameras, so Fisher forfeited Game 2, something absolutely unheard of at this level of chess. Fisher was about to board a plane and leave Iceland when he received a flood of telegrams and phone calls, including one again from Henry Kissinger. Spassky, now up two to nothing, agreed to have the games played in a back room with a single television camera that didn't make any sound, and no audience. There are people who think that Fisher's antics up to this point were all designed to psych Spassky out. Based on how things went from here, it might just have worked. After spotting Spassky, the world champion a full two games, Fisher managed to win Game 3, his first ever win against Spassky. He tied Game 4 and won Game 5. Game 6 was one of the greatest games in chess history. Fisher never before used an opening move called the Queen's Gambit. In fact, he was quite vocal about how it was a bad opening move. The Soviets purposely never bothered to prepare for this because they thought it was out of the question that he would ever use it. Fisher crushed Spassky so bad that at the end of Game 6, Spassky was amused, smiled, and applauded Fisher. After this, Fisher had the lead and the championship was in the bag. Spassky won only one more game. The match ended after Game 21 with a final score of 12.5 to 8.5. Fisher returned to the United States as a celebrity. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, he appeared on The Tonight Show, and he received over a million dollars in endorsement deals, and he turned every one of them down. It was the last public chess tournament that Bobby Fisher participated in for over 20 years. He became increasingly paranoid and recluse. He began spouting conspiracy theories, and he spent years on the run from American law enforcement. Many people believe he may have suffered from schizophrenia. In 1975, he was stripped of the world championship because he refused to defend it. After Fischer was no longer the champion, the Soviet chess machine went right back to dominating the world of chess. They owned the world championship for another 30 years. Bobby Fischer actually played Boris Spassky again in 1992 in Serbia, where he beat him again, 17.5 to 12.5. Even after he stopped playing competitively, he appears to have never lost his genius for chess. After the Serbian match, he stayed with the Polgar family, which I did a previous episode on. He spent several weeks helping to teach the Polgar sisters. In 1981, he briefly stayed with a Canadian Grand Master named Peter Bialis. Fischer played 17 games with him and beat him in all 17. Bobby Fischer died in 2008. Before his death, however, there were rumors of him appearing online and playing chess under an assumed name. Grandmaster Nigel Short was beaten eight games in a row online by someone he believed to be Bobby Fischer, given his level of play and knowledge of other grandmasters. Boris Spassky is still alive today at the age of 84. He is the world's oldest surviving world champion. 
The World Chess Championship was the first of two great competitions between the United States and the Soviet Union in 1972. In chess, the United States beat the Soviets at their game. In the other competition, the Soviets beat the Americans at their game. And that happened to be on a basketball court. But that is a story for another episode. The associate producer of Everything Everywhere Daily is Thor Thompson. Today's five-star review comes from listener Krister over at Podcast Republic. They write, Fantastic podcast that keeps it informative, but still keeps charm and personality. I've learned a lot by listening to this podcast. A listener from Sweden. Taksimaket, Krister. I've been able to explore quite a bit of your country, traveling from Umia down to Malma. I've even had the pleasure of tasting surströmming on the island of Uva, served up by the surströmming king himself. And don't worry, I won't hold surströmming against you. Remember, if you leave a review or send me a question via email or social media, you too can have it read on the show.